Welcome to the OA Light a Candle meeting podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you will find speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Mitzi. Hello, thank you so much. Hi, I'm Mitzi. I'm a compulsive over and under eater and bulimic. Hi, I'll lower this just a little bit. Um, first, I want to congratulate everyone for being here. For those of you who are listening, it's probably about 85, 90 degrees in this room, and we are all really sweating, (laughs) so we're willing to be uncomfortable, which is good, because that is what this program is about. So I came into program in 2001, in March 26, 2001, and I'll tell you what it was like before, what happened, and what it's like now. I don't think I was actually born an addict. I don't remember having a compulsion about food as a little, little kid. Uh, My earliest memories are of being uh, with my sister and my mom. My mom and dad divorced young, and although he was in our lives on the weekends, it was two girls with with a single mom, and she was very lenient. She was, it was the 70s. She was very loosey-goosey, and we could eat, you know, whatever TV dinner we chose, we can eat however much of it we wanted and if we didn't feel like finishing it it wasn't I was never forced to sit at a table and finish eating what I was eating and I remember even when we'd go out and play you know summertime or weekends we'd go out with the sandwich you know we'd go outside and play it was crazy times back then and I remember sometimes putting my peanut butter sandwich like in the mailbox because I knew I shouldn't waste food so I thought it would go to poor kids so, sorry for all those people that received peanut butter and jelly on their mail. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I remember not being obsessed with finishing my food. When I was eight years old, my mom uh, got a new boyfriend who was an alcoholic, and he was physically abusive and slightly sexually abusive in a really crazy way that's hard to describe. And uh, he talked her into moving to New York to start up a business, and then they were going to send for us. So my sister and I went to go live with my father, and he was very strict. And one of his pet peeves was how my mother fed us. And he did make me sit at the table until I finished my lima beans and things like that. And right there and then, food became mom and about control and about just totally being parented in a completely different way and feeling so sad and so abandoned that even when my mom came back and I went back to live with my mom, I remember doing weird things with food. Like we'd have ice cream in the freezer and I'd come home from school and I had a decent amount of friends. 
Uh, and I was a kid who played outside a lot, but I remember coming home from school and shutting the blinds. She worked. I was a latchkey kid. And uh, scooping the underneath of the ice cream so that the layer, so that the level of the ice cream didn't go down, but scooping the underneath of the ice cream and eating a big bowl of ice cream with the and, and shutting the blinds. And I knew that that was weird, but there was no physical consequences. I was... Um, I was a thin kid. I worked, you know, I was a very muscular kid. I danced. So there wasn't any physical consequences. So it pretty much went unnoticed. I mean, it was noticed, but uh, I didn't know till later when my friends told me that I used to come to their house and ate all their food as an adult. Like they've since told me this, that I would eat everybody's food when I went back to their house. So um, when I got, when I was 11, I went back to live with my dad. He married a woman, and I had step-siblings and a mom that stayed home. And uh, Again, there were no physical consequences until I turned 16. And right before I turned 16, I tried to commit suicide at 15 years old. Um, because I just thought, I'm so sensitive, and I thought I'm just so different than everybody else. And I didn't really understand. I was actually a fairly popular kid, but I tried so hard to please everybody that I, I sort of was a chameleon. So if I was around the punker kids, I'd be a punker. If, you know, I would just sort of try and be whatever anybody else wanted me to be. And I think that that happened as a result of, you know, going from parent to parent. And, um, who it is hard, it is hard to keep my train of thought. I'm not lying, standing up here dripping sweat. Um, so, I tried to commit suicide, and I'm, I'm in a mental place for girls, and I start, like, counseling the other girls, and they decide that I'll do well. It actually was good for me to be in this, this mental facility because I was there with kids who were so emotionally messed up that they were intellectually damaged, and I could never see them assimilating. And I, I didn't know how any of them were going to ever be able to get jobs and things like that, and so... I, w I realized, you know what, I'm okay. I'm actually okay. A lot of things that have gone on in my life are pretty messed up, but I'm actually okay. So um, that actually helped. Kind of being in that environment helped a lot. So I get out of there, and I'm 105 pounds. I'm five feet tall. So for me, a normal body weight that doesn't actually look emaciated can be 95 pounds, especially at that age. So... I get out of the hospital, I'm 105 pounds, and everyone is saying to me, whoa, you look a little different, especially my dad, who my looks were very important to him. I looked just like him, except for he had blue eyes, um, and he had some narcissistic tendencies, and so I was a reflection of him, and he wanted to be proud of his pretty daughter, and I was taking that from him, and he was very angry. And again, we're talking about five pounds overweight, and I'm getting in trouble at home. So I start doing the dieting thing. Um, I'd already learned, it's funny, before doing any of this, I had already learned to make myself throw up. This is the early 80s now, and the word bulimia is just sort of a funny joke. Scarf and barf, you know, like these things, they, they're not really taken seriously at that point at all. And I remember a friend of mine, we were drinking, and a friend of mine told me, taught me how to make myself throw up. And she was like, do this whenever you've had too much to drink so that you'll be okay. 
and um, if you eat French fries. <laughs> <laughs> just, just do this if you ever have too much to drink or if you eat french fries so I was like okay and she was older than me she was my older sister's age and she was very beautiful so I really admired her so I was like okay this throwing up thing is kind of cool so now I start getting on the rigmarole of dieting and starving and that always is followed by a binge and then the head starts to go, what did you just do? You've been being so good. What did you just eat? You've got to get rid of that. And I've always likened bulimia to, it's like an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, except for they're both devils. And one's like, eat this, eat this, eat this. And sometimes I'd eat something that didn't even taste good just to make that voice shut up. Popcorn, <laughs> like you're sitting and watching TV. Just well, you had something salty. Now you need something sweet. Well, you had something sweet. Well, now you need something salty. Just this constant dialogue in my head of what I needed to eat, and then if I ate it, the voice of shame. Just you better get rid of that. What did you do? You're gonna gain so much weight. Oh God. And then I'd need to get rid of it just to make that voice go away. Now, I could alternate. I could go periods of time without acting out bulimically and just go from one diet to the next. There wasn't a commercial diet plan that I didn't go on. Um, usually at some point there would be a binge and a purge, uh, or at least a binge. But I really think that when I started gaining that weight, because when I try to commit suicide, I remember thinking something was just inherently wrong with me. Me as my soul, my being, something is wrong. I am less than for some reason. And when I started gaining weight, I sort of went into this fantasy world of this girl who was beautiful. She sort of looked like me, but she was perfect. And then any rejection was just blamed on the fat, and I could dissociate from the fat. So I actually think that the weight kind of saved me from really taking things too personal. And if there was a reason for me to have gained that weight, it was sort of so I could just be in this fantasy, and I mean a fantasy all day long, a daydream of that body how much love I was going to get, all of the friends, you know, the life that I was going to have when I was perfect and worthy of it. And any rejection, anything that happened negative, was just quickly dismissed as, well, if I was thin, they wouldn't do that to me, no matter what it was. I would go to bars. Like, I didn't, I never went to prom. I didn't go to any school dances. I didn't have any boyfriends. I'd sometimes kiss somebody at a party, um, sometimes somebody I didn't even like just to be cool just because I was not having these experiences that all my friends were having uh, and then when I got into my late teens and 20s going to bars and I'd meet guys who would ask me out and get my number and then they'd call me and I'd convince myself that they saw me in some really good light or they saw me through beer goggles and that when they came to pick me up, well, then now they're going to really see me. And they're going to see that I don't look the way they thought I looked. And they're going to reject me. So these guys would call me, and I would tell them I was busy that weekend, but maybe next weekend, because I was going to lose five pounds before they saw me again. And so I'd keep doing that. You know, each week I didn't lose that five pounds. 
And I eventually these guys would go away because I kept being busy, and I didn't know why they had gone away. It made no sense to me. That's how absolutely crazy I was. Uh, Everyday Planner, we used to have them on paper back then. There were these books with paper, and they'd have the days of the week on them. And at the end of every week, I'd have a different number, and it was like three pounds less than the number before, and then there'd be a day to start off, like a big star. And that was the goal weight day. That would be the day I reached my goal weight, and my life would begin, and everything would be perfect. I never reached a goal weight. I was never a successful dieter. I was never able to stand a diet for, I think, more than like a week, maybe two. The closest I came was in the 90s. I went on FenFen, which, uh, for those of you who are younger, it actually was a combination of a stimulant and an antidepressant, and it was killing people. And um, even though it was giving me chest pains and lung aches, and I lost my car and reported it stolen because I was out of my mind, I still continued to take it until even that stopped working. Even on the FenFen, at a certain point, I started eating again. So they're really, even drugs that everybody was successfully getting the weight off with, at a certain point, my eating disorder owned it. It was stronger. My desire to eat just won. So what happened was I, uh, I'm now, well, I, I do have my first boyfriend. I have my first boyfriend at 29 years old. Um, Magically, I don't know, I just sort of fell into that and um, started to purge after again. I, I sort of stopped purging on my own, but just going from one different diet to the next. I was on food combining. Like, I was just doing all this crazy stuff with food all the time. So um, we broke up and I started purging again after a long time of not purging. And I was actually calling in sick to work. And I was um, instant messaging with a friend of mine on AOL, AIM. We were instant messaging all day. She had, like, a boring receptionist job. And she was sober. And I just always admired how she always had an answer for everything, for any problem that she had, for anything that was going on. She would be very gentle and loving, and she'd just be like, well, I have a program, so when that kind of thing happens to me, I just do this. And it all sounded so grounded and so loving and so logical that I was just very attracted to it. And I was like, tell me more about these steps. These are interesting. Having no idea that there was a program for me. And finally, it got to a point where I was calling in sick enough and I was really binging and purging to a point where I told her what was going on, not even thinking she would have a solution, but she had just become my closest confidant. And she said, there's a program for you. And I was like, really? And she said, yeah, it's Overeaters Anonymous. <laughs> I was just like, that's the worst name. Like, I am embarrassed to be overweight. I don't want to go to a club called Overeaters Anonymous. Like, I just, I found the name to be so embarrassing and off-putting. But um, I couldn't, I couldn't stop doing it. I really, it was like being possessed by the devil. I couldn't stop doing it. I couldn't leave my house. I couldn't do anything, and I really loved how she lived her life, and I really, she really 12-stepped me, like, so perfect. <laughs> um, it took a long time to realize, wow, she laid that out really, really well, 
um, so she referred me to a meeting, and it was at the Gay and Lesbian Center. And mind you, I'm 30 years old at this point. I have had one boyfriend. My whole family has encouraged me very lovingly many times to come out because <laughs> they're sure I'm gay because why else wouldn't Mitty have a boyfriend all this time and I'm like I'm not so I got I went into this meeting and it's funny because I've been at so many meetings at the Gay and Lesbian Center and now I'm so comfortable I've lived in West, West Hollywood for 16 years but that night just happened to be the night that everyone was talking about their sexuality and how it how it affected their eating disorder in a way that I've never heard in a gay meeting since that I've been to so many. It was that I started to feel so defensive. <laughs> it was like I was going to stand up in the middle of the meeting and go, I'm not gay. And everybody's going to go, we didn't ask you. So, um, so I got uncomfortable and I left the meeting and it just wouldn't leave my head. I'd heard of Overeaters Anonymous. I could not hear about it. I'd heard it called a binge now and I couldn't go back to calling it a Friday night with some videos and some food. You know, once once you've heard these terms, you can't unlearn what you've learned. I can't go back now and just say, oh, this is just what I'm doing on Friday night. Now there's a word for it. It's a binge. And it's, it's not going back. So I went back to another meeting that was on the corner of um, Fairfax and Fountain. I don't even know if they have meetings any there. And there was one other person there. It was on a Monday night. And I went there again the next week, and there was one other person. And then the next week, another person, a third person joined us, and she told us about a Wednesday night meeting called Artists and Abstinence that's on Beachwood Drive. And I was like, okay, because nobody had told me about any other meetings. So I went to this meeting, and there was a lot of people there, and there was an old friend, a girl that I had known when I worked at the at a restaurant. I, shouldn't, I guess I shouldn't say the name, I don't know. But a restaurant that had giant portions. And we would all be binging our faces off at the end of our shifts. And this girl had a perfect body. She was always eating perfectly. And seeing her in this room was like seeing a pelican at, you know, a petting zoo. It, it made absolutely no sense to me what she was doing there. But I was like, I was so excited to see her there. And we became friends. And we went out afterwards to fellowship, and she said to me, you have to get a sponsor, and you have to take direction, and you have to do what she says. Because as addicts, we're very willful, and we don't take direction. And I'm very grateful that she's the one who told me that. Because if I'd gotten a sponsor, because I knew from movies that I was going to get a sponsor, um, if I'd gotten a sponsor and she said to me, you have to listen to me and you have to take my direction, I would have been like, yeah, right, that's really convenient for you to say. Like, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have trusted that coming from her. She had a vested interest, so to speak. So I'm really glad that this outside person who didn't have a stake in it said to me, just do what you're told. Take direction. Do what you're told. And that was incredible for me to hear because I'm not a person who likes to be told anything, for one, and I, I don't really do what I'm told. So I get a sponsor, and I start to work the steps. And I made my abstinence dairy, <laughs> which I think I've met one other person who ever came in these rooms and made their abstinence dairy because my main binges were like, the thing of brie cheese and then ice cream, like all of my, my binges were things that had dairy. So I was just like, okay, no dairy. That's my allergy food. I was very excited to have that figured out so quickly. And so I would go out. We would go to the log cabin 
every night for meetings. And then we'd go over to Earth Cafe, and I would get, like, a salad to have a top line. I, I started very early doing something like top line foods, where I don't focus necessarily on these, these red light foods that I'm not going to eat that are bad. That, for me, isn't a recipe for success. For me, top line foods, where I go, okay, every day I want to eat fruit. Every day I want to eat vegetables. Every day I want to eat whole grains. Every day I want to eat proteins. That's how I would feed a child if I had a child, and that's how I want to feed myself. So I was focused on top lines. So we would go to Earth Cafe, and I'd get a salad, and I'd get a piece of vegan chocolate cake (laughs) because it had no dairy, and that was my abstinence. So I get a sponsor. I start working with steps. I'm going to fellowship all the time. I'm not focusing on my weight and on my body, and... um, I start to not be able to finish. I, I didn't finish the vegan chocolate cake at, at the cafe. And I brought it home and, and put it in the refrigerator, which leftovers for me just means, you know, in 20 minutes when I have more room, that's when I'm going to eat that thing. <laughs> I say, that's, that's how I do. That's what leftovers means. I just, just, just need a break for about 20 minutes or so. So one morning I wake up and I open my refrigerator, and there's the cake, and I'd forgotten about it. And even though I knew I was home alone, I honestly did look around. <laughs> like, there's cake in here. I forgot the cake. I forgot about cake. Like, I felt like a legitimate magic trick had happened in my refrigerator and in my life. I was just like, I forgot about a piece of cake, and it's mine, and I'm entitled to it, and I forgot about it, and I don't care about it. And that was just, like, the most amazing thing. It was the most amazing thing. And it started to happen where I would just have enough. You know, I'd order that meal or I'd start to eat that meal. And at a certain point, I'd, I'd have enough food. And that was fine. And I didn't need to finish it. And I didn't need to go get any more 20 minutes later. And I didn't have that voice saying, popcorn, popcorn, <laughs> at, at night to me in my head. I, I remember years into program getting a sponsor, getting a sponsee, and she said to me, how do you go from dinner to bedtime without eating? And it, was, it, it slapped me because I was just like, oh, yeah, that really used to be a problem for me, and that's something I don't even think about anymore. That's so crazy that that's not something that haunts me, that that voice isn't talking to me on night. I also made a spiritual abstinence. I want to remember this. When I came into the room, I realized that I like to make a lot of self-effacing jokes, but I also... When I was new in this program or before program, I'd like to make jokes about my looks and my body because I thought you were thinking it, and if I said it before you thought it, then it then you can't hurt me with it. And so I made a spiritual abstinence not to say anything negative about my body out loud. And I and I um, the measurement of that, how I quantify that, is that if it's anything that if a mother was overheard saying about her daughter, like. Oh, Missy can go on a date when she loses 10 more pounds. She can go on the Internet and start dating. If, 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 any, if anything that I'm saying a lot about my body, if my mother was saying it about me and she sounded like a jerk, then I don't get to say it. And you'd be surprised how loud that voice gets when I first started doing that, how loud it's a bully. It's a bully that's being ignored. So at first it gets super, super loud, and then it shuts up. Now, it's 16 years later, I'd love to say that I've adhered to this perfectly and kept it perfectly, 
But life has happened along the way, and I consider myself married to this program, and marriages are a bit of a roller coaster. So I'm going to tell you what it's like now. I do have continuous abstinence from binging and purging for the last 16 years, and I've gone through a lot in the past 16 years. I have had another relationship, caught, was living with him, caught him cheating on me, had a really bad breakup. I was raped. I have lost both my parents, both in the last in the last year and a half, both of my or last two years. My mom just a year ago, my dad 13 months before her. I have had such career lows that I didn't know how I was going to support myself and such career highs that I couldn't believe how lucky I was. Like I have been through a whole lot of life in 16 years and there was never a day that I wanted to go to the grocery store and get a baguette and a big chunk of brie and a pint of Ben and Jerry's. There wasn't. I, it, it just doesn't occur to me that that's what I want to do when I'm feeling things. Even the worst grief and the worst heartbreak what has happened, I'm going to talk about sustaining this program, sustaining it over a long period of time. I have fluctuated. I mean, I'm five feet tall, so 10 to 15 pounds. Uh, I don't really get on a scale, so I'm guessing it's about 10 to 15 pounds. It's actually a dramatic change on my body um, in a way that it may not be on someone taller. But... Um, Yes, as I was saying, a, a week ago, it was a year that I lost my mom, and it was very sudden, and she wasn't sick, and it was very upsetting. My dad had been sick for a number of years with Alzheimer's, and I'd become his legal guardian, and there was a lot of responsibility with that, and just a lot of heartbreak to watch a person die while they're still alive inside their body and just keep going on. Um, so that was really, really hard, and... Um, and so then I felt just when I was at a point where I was appreciating my mom the most, you know, after my dad was gone and I was aware of her mortality, but she was very healthy and we had time. You know, she woke up one day and went into a coma and never woke up. So I went into some grief. And it gets a little tricky because I was in grief counseling and a lot of what you feel when you're, when you're grieving uh, it's tired and you just it, you have a hard time showing up to stuff and a job that I was working on had ended but I was financially secure enough to not really need a job and I wasn't really motivated you know to get a lot of work and grief counseling was kind of like just let yourself rest and part of resting involved maybe buying that frozen meal or now in no time was I buying, like, a hungry, you know, I'm not buying crazy, horrible for me frozen meals, but the truth is for me, what I prepare for myself when I lovingly cook for myself is cleaner and does better for my body than even the healthiest order in or frozen meal that I heat up. And sometimes it wasn't the healthiest meal, even though it certainly wasn't a binge meal. I wanted more comfortable food. I wanted things that were a bit more comforting. You know, then maybe a salad. I wanted maybe some potato. You know, again, nothing evil, nothing horrible, nothing that would be an alarm to anybody, but gradually, and being sedentary a little bit, some weight crept back on. So I have gained about 10 pounds in abstinence 
So now in abstinence, being aware of this, knowing that if I start to count calories and get on a scale and try to diet and try to take control back, it could be a hop, skip, a jump, and away from a binge and a purge. I have to really dig in like a newcomer. And that is humility. And I love the way humility sounds. Sometimes in practice, it's a bit overrated. I'm not in the mood. I just want to be okay. I don't want to have to try so hard. And it does start to feel like a riddle. There are honestly times where when I'm going to the grocery store, where it, when it used to just be sort of intuitive and easy, there are times where it, does, it can feel like when I'm trying to plan a lunch or a dinner or a like I'm sort of walking this, this fine line between trying to diet and trying not to come. Like that, that line can become fuzzy even after all these years. And I need you. I need all of you. I need to come to meetings. And sometimes you hear that person with three weeks say the most profound thing that totally helps your program. <laughs> and that's why I keep coming back to these rooms. Because I need this information reiterated over and over I need to keep hearing it I need to keep practicing it in different ways I need to borrow your higher power sometimes because sometimes mine I'm you know I've been with for so long that I'm taking him for granted or her for granted or whatever it is that is just what I find can get tricky after years and years in program. So I wanted to be honest about that because I, I did have some apprehension about speaking here today because there was a little piece of me that was, I felt a little bit like a fraud, you know. But 10 pounds doesn't mean that I'm not abstinent. I'm, we're talking about vanity weight. There's no doctor looking at any of my blood work or my size. I mean, I'm a size six. <laughs> There's nobody saying to me, you are really not healthy anymore. This is not okay. It's just my van. That's the disease. Saying, you're not a size two. You don't have anything to say to these people. That's not recovery. So, no, I'm a size six, and that's okay. I'm 48. I'm doing okay, you know. Um, so, with that, I do, without giving advice, want to just shout out to working these 12 steps because I don't know why when I make the most sound plan of eating and write it down and have a commitment with somebody even to like go exercise together and do, that doesn't result in a weight loss for me or not eating for me the way that if I write down who I resent, what it affects, what my part is, what the character defect is, what amends if necessary. I don't know why that makes the food brain and the body brain turn off more than this really sound food and exercise plan that's supposed to do it. But it does. It's like voodoo. In this program, we brush our hair to get our teeth clean. That is what we do in here. So I have found the more attention I put on my program, the more recovery I have, the more attention I put on my food, the more food I have. So I hope somebody got something out of this. I appreciate anybody sitting through this heat wave. We're all like fanning ourselves and just trying to be okay um, today. And if you have any questions, I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you so much. Okay, so hi, and so I'll repeat your question. How do you compare to 
<laughs> he said, how do you go from dinner to bedtime without eating? Well, a lot of times I don't think about food after dinner. That's just, the, that's just what's happened with my recovery. But there are a few things that if I am thinking about food, I can do. Um, calling other fellows is really hard, but I've made it a point to make friends with other fellows in this program. So that makes it a lot easier. Making friendships in here has been probably why I've stayed for 16 years. I don't do things unless they're fun, so I had to make this program fun. Um, TV can be a trigger for me to want to eat, so I really love music. And if I put on headsets and listen to music for some reason, it like it really gets in my brain to a point where food thoughts don't happen. So that can really help me a lot. Yeah, reading a book or or doing some writing, like why do I want to eat right now? God, please help me. That can help. But music is a big one for me. Music is a big help for me. Putting on some headsets and Escaping into that world can help a lot, or getting out of the house if I can. Me as in a TV alone can usually be where the food stuff comes up. Thank you. You talked about your, your higher power, like the program and Sure. My relationship with my higher power is like, um, hard for me to start a sentence with like, since I'm over 25. Uh, I've had different concepts of a higher power as the years go on, but what I like to think of my higher power, it, what I like to think of my higher power as now is like a wave of energy. Like there's this good energy, and it goes through all of the things that create, you know, the trees and the things that are good in this world, and that if I pray in the morning for that energy, for my, that what that's in me to connect with that so that I could vibrate on a higher level and help other people in that day. That, it, that can be a concept for me of a higher power that works. And then I can go, I can do that, or sometimes there is a God, there is a being. I don't necessarily know if it's described in any Bible, but there is a being, that a, a loving, kind, gentle being that I can pray to. Um, and and that can be a higher power as well. And I was a person who was always seeking before a program. I was always going to many, many different things, different religions and stuff like that, because I wasn't raised in any religion. So. Anybody else? Can you talk about like, sponsoring people in this program? Yes. Sponsoring in this program is one of those things that if I'm so distracted with my own life and my own crap that I've got just a toe in this program, that's going to root me and get me back in this program. And it just reinforces my program. I cannot tell you how many times just the advice that I needed that I wasn't able to hear, even though I was probably being given that advice, comes to me when somebody else needs me. I think the best aspects of me come out when I'm being of service and uh, taking other people through this program. And I've had so many sponsees over the years. This is a program where people can come in and out quite a bit. And uh, I've had a lot of sponsees, and I've had very few. I've had like four or five that I've taken through all of the steps. 
Um, and it, it just helps my program so much. But I can notice that they can reflect what's going on with me if I'm feeling like showing up more. It's interesting the kind of sponsees, like what's going on in my life, can show up in the kind of sponsee that comes in if I'm sort of in one of those spaces where I'm not putting as much effort and energy in. I'm becoming a little lazy. I'll get that sponsee that calls once a week. <laughs> so if I try and be, I, I have a syllabus. I don't mess around with step work because I believe in these steps. And I'm here to work a 12-step program. I'm not, all of the other tools are great. And uh, I'll see, I've stolen this from a friend. If I don't use the tools to build the steps, then I'm not going to ascend to any recovery. So the steps, the steps, the steps. I'm a step sponsor, and I make sure that my sponsees work the steps, and that's a requirement. So thank you so much. That's all the time that I have. Thank you very much.